Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Live from our nation's capital. This budget thing is going to do nothing. Space Force, I still think it's interesting. President Trump not playing his cards yet. Headlines, policy, and politics colliding. Bloomberg, sound on. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. I would rather see a congressional solution. It's part of my DNA. The Senate map in 2020 looks a lot different than it looked in 2018. President Trump was sent here to smash conventional norms. In a sense, Bernie Sanders has already won. This is Bloomberg, sound on with Kevin Cirillo. On Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Coronavirus. Lawmakers are looking at it to see what they need to do to coordinate with regulators. I'm going to bring you an exclusive interview I did with Senator Mark Warner, Democrat from Virginia, and market reaction from the coronavirus. S&P 500 sinks more than 3%. Volatile swings, folks, up and down. Up and down. Larry Kudlow is still an optimist. I'll talk about that. John Sidalides is here, geopolitical strategist at Trilogy Advisors and diplomacy consultant to the State Department. Speaking of which, I was over at State this morning catching up with Morgan Ortegas, the top uh, political communications advisor to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. We talked about the Taliban uh, and the peace deal as well as... The coronavirus. Everyone's talking about what is Washington going to do with the coronavirus. So I'll bring you that interview. And Robert Shapiro's here, chairman of Sonicon and senior economic advisor for Democratic presidential candidates, including former presidents Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. He's got a great piece out, a thought piece on the economy, regulations, and the coronavirus. So we'll dip into that. You know, I was so caught up. So caught up in the coronavirus, Senator Elizabeth Warren dropped out today. Elizabeth Warren, out of the race, has not endorsed Robert Shapiro's here. John Sidalides hasn't endorsed Robert Shapiro. I think she's waiting for the right moment. So you think she's trying to increase her leverage? Absolutely. I also think she's uncertain who she's going to endorse. All right. Well, let's actually listen to her just to, for a second. She says she has no regrets. Here's Senator Elizabeth Warren, Democrat from Massachusetts, dropping out of the presidential race. She was back in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Here she is. I have no regrets at all. You know, this has been the honor of a lifetime. Well, she's back. She's back in the Senate. We'll see who she endorses and... Uh, 
Then there were two. Let's dive into that coming up. But we have to start, of course, with the major story of the day. John Sidalides, U.S. stocks tumble, bonds surge on virus fears. U.S. stocks tumbled as volatility sparked by the threat of the coronavirus woes continued to grip financial markets. Treasury yields sank to record lows. And Haven assets surged. The S&P 500 fell more than 3%, erasing the majority of Wednesday's steep gains. These are wild swings. I'm reading there, of course, from the Bloomberg Terminal. So the markets are saying we don't know what's going on, folks. Even as lawmakers have advanced a, a nearly eight billion, about eight billion dollars worth of of help for this, but the markets are still uh, very anxious. John, the markets are gripped by emotional terror. Emotional over, terror over the coronavirus wow. hysteria. And, you know, I, I'm not the first one to talk, Kevin, about the fact that every year tens of thousands of Americans die of influenza, mm. right? 30, 40, 50,000 people die every single winter season in the United States. But we don't have the media breathlessly reporting every single new flu infection or flu death. It's not just us. It's not just us, John. Senator Marco Rubio, Republican, Florida, he said today that Lawmakers up on Capitol Hill are bracing for there to be coronavirus in Congress. The State Department, I was there today. We'll play from uh, Morgan coming up. But Secretary of State Mike Pompeo at a press conference today going through all of the different Mm -hmm. avenues that folks are taking. But I hear you. Maybe people are a little bit too aggressive with the Purell. Well, there's a couple of things here I would say, Kevin. One, first of all, is we've given this a name. So now we've kind of put it in its own box, right? It's not just like the common cold or the flu. This is something special and something new. But it's also very mysterious. We know so little about this virus. We still don't know where it came from. It turns out the wet market was a lie. Uh, This could be from a bio lab in Wuhan. We just have no idea. And we don't know what the rate of infection is. We don't know what the death rate is. It's 1% in this population. It's 3% in this population. So I think that because there's so much unknown about this, it makes it even more terrifying to many people. There is a lot of uncertainty, Kevin. But... The market also knows certain things. Here are some of the things it knows. If this virus is as transmittable as normal flu, we're talking about 40 million people getting it. 40 million people on average got the flu over the last two seasons per year. If it has a 2% mortality rate, that's 800,000 deaths. Not wow. If it has a 3.4%, it's well over a million. Now, I'm not saying it's going to happen because we certainly, the main thing is we do not know whether it's as infectious and contagious as the regular flu. That is unknown. Mm-hmm. What we do know is from a lot of economic research and from war games that were conducted, I was actually part of them. In 2006, which was around the avian flu, that pandemics, if yeah, they— Yeah, and you write about—I want to plug, before we dive into this, the, you, wrote, you have an essay in Washington Monthly that dives into the similarities, and I, and I'm, so I want to plug that and go ahead uh-huh. about the Thank avian you. flu. But you talk about the National Science Foundation, the World Bank, uh, and other global organizations coming together to discuss the threat of the avian flu. Right. And now I think the, the point you lay out in this is that it, there doesn't appear to be a cohesive 
resp- there's mixed messages, not just from uh, from politicians here in D.C., but from around the world. Right. There's been mixed messages, and that, that's not even uniquely a Trump thing. Oh no, different countries are saying different things. And and we should keep in mind that the avian flu scare turned out to be nothing. Right. We know this is not nothing because it has already spread much more than the avian flu, but we don't know how serious it would be. From from it, go ahead. From, well, just from, similarly on the swine flu in 2009, I believe 60 million Americans were infected, or 60 million people, and 12,000 died. So again, we we don't know. There's so much to be had here, so much to be learned. Uh, but we just need to keep this in perspective. And I think that's what we're losing sometimes. You know, I think it's fascinating in terms of where the de- the politics of this is headed. Because a question, and we'll hear this coming up. Uh, well, I, this was on Bloomberg TV with Senator Warner, a Democrat from Virginia, about whether or not in a pandemic, in this case we're talking about the coronavirus, should these vaccines be free? Because if you have or should any type of treatment, not even a vaccine, should any type of treatment during a pandemic be free? Now, you think of that from a national health perspective and the immediacy of action that that requires. But then you have to think of it from a financial perspective. And that's what Mark Warner has been having conversations about. And that's what he told me uh, about him talking with the financial sectors about how do you allow for regulators to talk to the financial institutions to have the liquidity to be able to provide that type of financial resource, but also Robert Shapiro, but also be able to say, to get some to the regulators, hey, this is this is okay if, I don't know, everyone's working from home and they can't pay their bills on time because there's a pandemic. So there's a lot of economic impacts that, quite frankly, we're just beginning to scratch the surface of. Absolutely. And One of the things that we learned from those war game simulations around the avian flu is that the the if you have a real pandemic, um, the greatest economic costs don't come from the illness itself. The human costs come from the illness, but the greatest economic costs come from how we have to respond, Um, and that is um, restricting transportation networks. Uh, closing borders, even quarantines, people staying home. What you're, what we're describing here are a set of conditions that reduce simultaneously consumption, investment, incomes, and employment, and the economy shuts down. All right, coming up, we're going to talk much more about all of this. Plus, we're going to zip into foreign policy with John as it relates to the Taliban peace deal. I'm Kevin Cirilli. John stays. Robert stays. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. The establishment candidates got out, some of them. Uh, Judge got out. Maybe Klobuchar got out. Bloomberg got out and they consolidated around uh, Joe Biden. Uh, and Wall Street is emptying its uh, checkbooks to fund uh, Joe's campaign. Senator Bernie Sanders, the independent senator from Vermont who caucuses with the Democrats now. Then there were two, folks. Warren's out. Elizabeth Warren drops out of the race. She's not endorsing yet. Has not made up her mind. She said she needs more time. She's like one of those undecided voters in Iowa. Uh, 
ahead of, well, then there were two, Joe Biden and, and Bernie Sanders. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV, Bloomberg Radio. It's like a March Madness bracket that is <laughs> just keeps getting winnowed down, and this is this is the big game. Sorry, Tulsi Gabbard. I think she's technically still in it. Uh, John Sidalides <laughs> is here. Robert Shapiro is here as well. Two all-stars. Uh, let's let's. Let's dabble into into 2020. I'll, I'll start with you, Robert, just given that you have advised former presidents Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. I'm not counting out Bernie Sanders. I think that, they, that they're looking at this as 2016 part two of a contested convention, and they've, they've been planning for this. Here's the way I think of it, Kevin. Was Biden's enormous victory, was that how much of that was a rejection of Bernie. Yeah. Smart. And how much was it, let's take a pause? What do you uh, mean by take a, a pause from what? A pause before Bernie was on the verge of getting the nomination. Oh, wow. Okay, this is fascinating. I never thought of it this way. You're saying maybe the, the voters on, of Super Tuesday said, <sighs> let's Correct. exhale Correct. and let's see if we could have even more of a debate. What do you the, think it is, Robert? This often happens, incidentally. Um, I think that Sanders has very deep problems. He has shown that he has not been able to increase the participation of young people, so far at least. True. Uh, he has broadened his coalition only in one respect, uh, and that is with respect to Latinos. Mm -hmm. He couldn't broaden it with respect to African Americans. Moreover, the Democratic coalition expanded because it took in white suburbanites who were rejecting Trump. And that new expansion of the Democratic electorate went to Biden. John, let me ask you this question, because all those points that, that Robert lays out are, but are, are great. But from your perspective, is Trump world a little bit uneasy of having to face Biden in general? Because candidly, based upon my reporting, I, I would tell you that they wanted to, they wanted to go against Bernie. It's very difficult to tell, right? There are different strategies for each of the candidates. And someone like Bernie Sanders does have significant populist appeal. And there's actually a segment of the Trump voter base in 2016 that could potentially lean Sanders, especially if we have this coronavirus recession in the second half of the year. Preach. And then all of a sudden, free stuff and socialism doesn't sound that bad anymore. But with Biden, I think there are going to be issues that were becoming marginalized as he seemed to go into zombie status before South Carolina, that will now come back in a very significant way. His gaffes, I think, are going to be increasingly a problem. Uh, we'll be looking at his speech and his cognition. We'll also be looking at the corruption charges again. Hunter, and I, and Hunter I think, Biden. And I think very much in the context of coronavirus and the larger strategic disengagement of the U.S. and Chinese economies, I think Biden's comments about China and blowing it off as a danger to the United States security-wise and economically may be very problematic for him once the Trump ad machine rolls. The only time— That's a preview, by the way. If you're listening, this is why John says— I mean, both of you both have, are offering previews, but what John just said about Biden world and China is a preview. Go ahead. Well, let me say— uh, Give the us only, a preview. The only time Americans have re-elected a president during a recession was FDR in 1936. But there's a difference between a pandemic recession and a recession. You know what I mean, though, right? Because you could consider that. I'm not, I'm not saying it. Right. But they're going to spin it as this is a natural disaster. And you know? the way the Biden or the Sanders yeah. campaign will spin it as this is a president who 
cut funding for NIH, who cut funding for the CDC, who cut funding for WHO, who eliminated the pandemic task force. I'm not convinced we're going to have a recession, though. Vulnerable. I'm still not convinced. Neither am yeah. I. And are you Neither am I. But no. I think there is a much higher likelihood I mean, today than there if, was. But if the coronavirus dies out by the spring, I mean, that. We will have not have a recession. And jobs day is tomorrow. I'll be at the Labor Department preview tomorrow morning. <laughs> tomorrow morning. I'll hear what they have to say. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I think yeah. has been happening. And we keep talking about Trump. And of course, he's the standard bearer. He's the candidate. He's the incumbent. But I'm watching Brad Parscale very closely. Yeah. This man is brilliant. He is. And, and I think they've had Talk strategies. about data. They've had strategies ready for every candidate. So I think, you know, they may be going through a little bit of an adjustment right now. To your point, I don't know that the contest is settled yet. And before it's settled, there's going to be a major battle between the moderate, centrist, more traditional wing of the Democratic Party, which has pulled left. If you look at Biden's positions today, he's probably the most progressive leading candidate, potentially, in Democratic history. But and they still have to resolve this dispute inside the Democratic Party as to what the issues going into November are going to be. I hear that, but I, I've been flipping it on uh, on on that point. I think Senator Sanders, or do you think, it doesn't, Robert <laughs> Shapiro, do you think that Senator Sanders might have miscalculated in trying to broaden the appeal ahead of Super Tuesday? Because my reporting indicated that he wanted to he wanted to show his broader appeal post Super Tuesday, but he got whacked pummeled on Super Tuesday and did that was that a miscalculation to start late for that messaging well I think uh, I think the whole strategy miscalculated frankly uh, I think he counted on votes he didn't get I think he emphasized a series of issues which got the crowds at his rallies going just like Trump gets his crowds going but in fact we're not appealing to the majority of Democrats the biggest problem, I think, for Sanders strategically is that he counted on a base of voters who don't vote. Young people are the least likely Kids. to vote of any demographic. So Kids. it's great at the rallies. It's great at a number of events. But they when tweet. it's actually time to vote, they don't show up. They tweet. And they the, TikTok. And the older Democrats all went for Biden. Well, yeah. interestingly, they did show up in 2018. Yes, but not and, in this cycle. But not in a mm -hmm. primary. Yeah. That's and in, right. And we, we saw this not in Iowa. Bernie. In, Look, in Iowa, in Iowa, Sanders only had half the turnout, the, the only half the voters in Iowa in this cycle that he did in 2016. That was a signal, and we missed it. No, I, yeah, I, you know, when Cardi B and Ariana Grande are coming out to endorse you, <laughs> Bernie Sanders, hey, TikTok, what do they have? What do they have there? What do the kids do these days? <laughs> what is the the TikTok thing, the Snapchat, and all of the? Uh, I don't even know. Well, it's not a vote. You got to go to the poll. You got to go to the car. I'm Kevin Cirilli, and you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more. 
With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Bloomberg Radio. I planted my uh, my flower, not flowers, the seeds in my flower box yeah. on my patio a couple days ago. So we'll see if I can grow anything. I've never been able to do it, but, you know, my thumbs aren't green. Maybe this year they turn green because I have coronavirus. Hopefully not. <laughs> I don't have it. I'm not kidding. Uh, I am kidding. I'm just going to stop talking. Uh, Robert Shapiro is here. Johnson Alides is here. Uh, anyway, I stink at growing things. Do you guys? Oh, I have a black thumb, as they you have say. A, so the, okay. What about you, John? Can't grow anything. Basil and oregano. I can I can grow basil. <laughs> I that I that I grew last year, and I put it in my in my marinara. Yeah. And in the crock pot, and I did the whole thing. So key, I guess key maybe. ingredients for a good meal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right. I want to come back to the coronavirus. Everybody's talking about the coronavirus, and actually, I I, I caught up with Senator Mark Warner. Uh, Democrat from Virginia earlier today for an interview with Bloomberg Television, but after the interview, I had this conversation with him because it's it's I believe something you're going to be hearing a lot about, and that is how how do you just just looking at the financial aspect of the coronavirus and assuming that there might be a situation where people are home and they're not able to maybe pay their bills or they're not maybe able to you know pay on time, how do credit rating agencies and the like and other financial institutions, how do they prepare for that? And how does Congress have to step in to uh, to have coordination between the regulators as well as the financial institutions? And is there precedent for that? So anyway, Senator Ward told me he was meeting with some uh, financial institution folks uh, earlier this week. And I, I want to play for you this this hallway interview that we did that we did uh, up on Capitol Hill earlier today. Here it is. At this point, I'm not sure that Congress needs to act, but we do what the banks need if they're going to do a little forbearance uh, on credit card debt or on other payments. They may need some, in a sense, ability to work with the regulators so that if people look like they're becoming more, in a sense, credit risky because of the virus, the banks aren't treated badly for treating them fairly. And that comes from the regulators? That comes more from the regulators. That's, that's, you know, they're under the safety and soundness requirements. You don't want banks having too many customers that are, you know, higher credit risk. But if somebody, you know, if a business is not meeting its payroll because nobody's showing up because the streets are deserted or someone can't make their, their credit card payment because... You know, the business doesn't provide them, um, mm-hmm. you know, pay for the weeks they may be quarantined. You know, I've urged the banks do the right thing. Let's let's treat these people fairly. But to have that ability, they may need some, you know, kind of <coughs> nod from the regulators, and that's what I'm hoping to help provide them. I mean, the data, Robert Shapiro, as someone who has advised presidents on economic issues, the data could be inherently flawed if so many people are staying home. Uh, well, I think the data will be 
subject to a lot of interpretation. The more distortions there are in the way companies operate and the way people work. Uh, But um, Mark Warner makes a very interesting point, and this, as opposed to the cut in interest rates, is something useful the Fed could do for this, and that is to issue guidance to the banks who they regulate um, on that kind of forbearance. One of the things that I find most astonishing about this situation is that, as we discussed at the beginning of this conversation, we have had a number of other pandemics over the last 20 years. Why are we not ready with contingency plans for yet another pandemic? And why are we creating formulas to try to address issues A, B, and C as if it's out of the blue and we haven't had an opportunity to be prepared? Where is HHS and CDC and all of these agencies? And why aren't they going back into their files to say, okay, what was our contingency plan 10 years ago and 15 and 20 years ago that's with these the other most epidemics? Ter- I hate to, that's the most ter- terrifying Where- part of all of this. Mm-hmm. And, and again, whether you're not, I mean, that's, I, what do you think, Robert? Why, well, why don't we have those look, plans? Yeah. In, uh, <laughs> in 2005 and 2006, going back to that avian flu incident, Uh, The Bush administration came in for withering criticism for not being prepared. Right. And the Bush administration turned around and got prepared and beefed up the funding for NIH, for CDC, uh, had specific agencies established for pandemics. The Obama administration further increased that, further beefed it up, established a pandemic task force inside the White House. This administration has cut CDC and NIH. Every but year it's been in office. I hear, and I don't want to, and I, I always interject here on this program because I don't want to do the, the, the funding cut le- left, right. I don't want to have that conversation. I want to have the conversation about can we trust China? No. I mean, no. Okay, you say no. Can we trust China? No. So both of you agree on well, that. And how me. do we pardon as a me. country— We can't trust the Chinese Communist Party. Well, the Chinese people are the victims of their party. So yeah. this is the problem in China. I, I hear you. But how mm-hmm. do we? How does the wor- global community put pressure on uh, General Secretary Xi Jinping to actually be forthcoming with data? And that was a question that I asked Morgan Ortegas, and we'll play the Taliban portion coming up. Uh, and she said that they've been more transparent. But if anyone has followed Secretary Pompeo, I mean, his rhetoric against uh, the Chinese has been incredibly uh, 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 pointed uh, and raised serious questions about about it. When I asked on Bloomberg Television, uh, Senator Warner, uh, he also described it as an authoritarian regime. Uh, and it is. But I mean, how how do you convince Robert, the Chinese, to step into the 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 Western, the, the other countries in combating a global pandemic. You can over the short term. You know, during SARS, uh, the Chinese government lied consistently about wow. all, the, all the data, and foreign direct investors actually punished them. They wow. said, if we can't trust you, and they slowed down investment. And then they came back. And But China is strong enough now that... Um, their focus is always on internal stability, not on their relationship with us or anybody Why else. is it to China's benefit, John, to lie about data? 
The Chinese Communist Party's number one priority, and I agree with Robert completely here, is to maintain power, right? To maintain control. Remember, this is the same government that allowed 50 million Chinese to die, to perish in a famine for the sake of progressive ideas back in the 1950s and 1960s. Human beings are expendable to the authorities in Beijing. So they're going to do whatever they need to to maintain absolute control in China. They don't care what comes in diplomatically from outside of China. But to your point, Robert, I think it's a very good one about economic or financial well, that's where, that's where punishment. The supply chains. They're moving out, and they're not moving out to punish China. They're moving out because businesses are recognizing that it doesn't make long-term sense to be so dependent on China and to a government that doesn't provide honest, clear communications on this type of a crisis. I'm going to be completely frank. I don't understand the... I, I would have to ask more questions to try to wrap my head around why you would want to lie about data of a pandemic in your country. But I... But if there's economic pressure on a country to say you better tell the truth about this, and if not, here's some economic impacts, is there anything that you foresee that businesses, not just U.S.-based companies, but also around the world, that they'll be doing to pressure the Chinese, John, to, to, to get honest? I don't see it. For the most wow. part, we're talking about Sad. Western trading partners of China. They don't control the markets. They don't control corporations. The president of the United States cannot tell industry A, B, and C, you cannot do this in China any longer. So we have different tools at our disposal. The markets have to make these decisions for themselves. And I think the way the Chinese government has played this, remember, for six weeks they knew about this and told nobody outside of Beijing from early December until right. mid-January. And it's one of the reasons why the outbreak has become so egregious, because we could have controlled this in the beginning if they had cooperated with the World Health Organization and other international Quick, forums. Like, do you just yes or no? Do you agree with that? Absolutely. All right. So there you have it, folks. I mean, they agree on that. Download the Bloomberg Sound on podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I'm Kevin Cirilli. More next. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. We were having so much fun in the break, I had to cut them off in the break. Robert Shapiro, Chairman of Sonicon and Senior Economic Advisor for Democratic presidential candidates, including former Presidents Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. Do you think Obama uh, endorses in the primary? Uh, I think he endorses when it's very clear who's going to be the nominee. Got it. Got it. John Cittellini's geopolitical strategist at Trilogy Advisors and diplomacy consultant to the State Department. John, do you think Obama endorses in the primary? Didn't he kind of endorse with his phone call like to it. Pete Buttigieg and the ability to get all of these other candidates to coalesce around Biden so quickly between South Carolina and Super Tuesday? Interesting. So, may oh, okay. So, may wow. Okay, I just had an aha moment right there. Uh, that was maybe Obama played a role in that. We're speculating. All right, it's time now for my favorite part of the program. What is the quick take on your radar? I'm going to kick it off because I was at the State Department today uh, reporting on coronavirus and, of course, the Taliban peace agreement. And uh, the Secretary Pompeo, uh, from the State Department's perspective, what they're saying is here's an 18-year war with Afghanistan that was started uh, after 9-11, and now here we are where 
the brave service members who are serving over there. Uh, many of them, some of them, were born after 9-11, and, and now they're serving over there. And what the, what the administration is saying, that they were able to have an agreement uh, between the Taliban and the Afghanistan government, and that the crux of this agreement is that the Taliban would depart and break ties with al-Qaeda. And so they've gotten all the parties to sit down and hash out this agreement. The question now is whether or not people are actually following through with this agreement or they're going to be able to come together. And so that's part of the interview that I did with Morgan that aired on Bloomberg Television earlier today. Um, But the administration is saying the fact that we've gotten to this particular moment where all the sides are talking about doing this is a step in the right direction. Here's Morgan Ortegas, the top uh, press secretary or top uh, communications advisor to Secretary Pompeo speaking to me earlier today. Here she is. Your question is the central question that was actually at the forefront of our policymakers' mind as we were negotiating this agreement. That's exactly what we said. And we knew that the Taliban had to publicly break with al-Qaeda. It's historic that they signed a document publicly breaking with al-Qaeda and other terrorist organizations. No one's ever been able to get them to do that before in 40 years. So, But the public recognition is just the first step. Now we need them to follow up on that. Remember that the Taliban is not a nation-state army. It's an insurgency. This isn't the German army in World War II. This is an insurgency. And so we're having to to work with them uh, to make sure that they are aware that the reduction of uh, the, the violence levels have to come down. President Trump was very explicit on that. And Zal Khalil Zad followed up with that yesterday. And we know that their political leadership is aware. President Trump wants out of Afghanistan. That's what this is all about. Right. And he's fulfilling the campaign promise. But I think also he has a deeply held belief that a war that, as you noted, Kevin, 18 years, longer than the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, World War I, and World War II combined, okay? So the scandalous nature of this, you know, post-invasion occupation of Afghanistan to achieve unachievable goals is coming to an end. I don't know that many people actually believe the Taliban are going to adhere to their word, that they are going to cut off ties with al-Qaeda and other groups. They will probably want our help to defeat Islamic State, which has set up groups uh, and, uh, and the like in Afghanistan. But we are now an offshore platform. If there's ever any threat to the United States or to critical allies and, and partners in the region, we can strike them from an offshore platform, but we don't need to have 10, 15, or 20,000 troops there. It will be a minimum force. We want the parties to see if they can work at an arrangement. But the future of Afghanistan is not the overriding policy concern of the United States. The removal of our troops and the repositioning for other threats is. Robert, do you think it was a step in the right direction? Well, I think it was an inevitable step. Okay. What this tells us is that everybody after 18 years is exhausted. And what the president is trying to get to is kind of, it reminds me of Nixon, peace with honor. Withdraw in an honorable way. What happens afterwards is we know beyond our control and his control. But you don't want to have Russia and China in a vacuum in the Middle East. Well, I think Russia's probably learned their lesson in Afghanistan. (laughs) And um, China's got 
bigger fish to fry. All right. Although the Chinese will look to engage in some type of contracts to extract valuable mineral resources from (laughs) Afghanistan. As they always Mm -hmm. do. All right. So that's what's on my radar, gentlemen. That's the quick take for there. Thanks to Morgan Ortega, over at the State Department. Uh, Who wants to go next? Well, you know, we were talking about this on a break. Uh, The corona, how, how do... President Trump and Bernie Sanders, whose camp, public campaigns are organized around huge rallies I where you had 20,000 people in You're a giving away a space. scoop of mine right now, but go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. How do you hold those rallies? Do, do the rallies have to be canceled? Yes. Central question. The answer I mean, is yes. And I don't even say – what I kind of laughed when you said it. I'm going to be honest. I'm a transparent guy. But <laughs> I, I, when you were saying that, I, then I started thinking of the national security implications. You can't have – Thousands of people in a stadium with two of the with the, the president of the United States and a pandemic. Ra- I mean, not it's, only there's that, a, there's a know, lot of questions. That's all I'm going to say. This is a virus which they say is most dangerous to people over 70. We have a 74 year old president and a 78 year old Bernie Sanders and a 77 year old mm-hmm. Joe Biden. They've all got to avoid. What crowds. are they going to do? Tweet. I mean, I guess TV. TV. Uh, hey. <laughs> You know, there's where there's a there's always an opportunity, right? You got to be an opportunist. You got to find adversity, and you got to look for the opportunity to turn it into your moment. Uh, okay, that's a great one. The rallies and the pandemic on your radar. This that was fascinating, Robert. All right, John. What's the quick take? What's your quick take? Geopolitics. Yes. I can't help it. No, Kevin, I know. Okay? I'm, I love it. Blood. That's why I love having you on is because I always learn about these, you know, the global issues and we can nerd out on this show. It's not just the slug fest of some of our other. Uh, never mind. Okay. Repeating ahead. our past errors. Uh, Germany in 2015 sent a signal to the Middle East that Germany was open to refugees and migrants. A million people came in from Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq. Pakistan completely upended European domestic politics and was probably the number one reason for the Brexit vote a year later. Now we have a massive refugee. Actually, they're not refugees, they're migrants, because the refugees that are coming out of Syria are still bottled up there. You have tens of thousands of migrants from South Asia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, sweeping through Turkey to the borders with Greece and Bulgaria. And the European Union is still unable to come up with a coherent policy. Why? because they don't work well together when migrants and refugees are coming into their respective individual member states. Wow. So they talk one way in Brussels, but the domestic politics in the separate countries makes it difficult for leaders to coordinate an EU policy. But this is potentially tens, if not hundreds of thousands of migrants heading into Europe in 2020. And what is Europe going to do about it? What, what do you, I mean, quickly, it's a mess or... It's a mess. It's a mess. It's a humanitarian disaster, but it could have tremendous political blowback, especially in Eastern European countries. But you know what, Chad Sidalides? You know what, Robert Shapiro? First of all, thank you both for coming on. Did you have fun together? Absolutely. You're on different (laughs) sides of that. But you know what? I, I was thinking when you were saying that, and when I was, we were talking about the coronavirus. You know, I, I remember what my dad told me back in Delco uh, a couple months ago, which is turn adversity into opportunity. Turn adversity into opportunity. Thanks, Dad. Download the Bloomberg Sound on podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. Tomorrow's Jobs Day. I wonder if the coronavirus will start to trickle into the jobs numbers. Yay or nay? 
Next month. Next month. I agree. agree. I got them to agree again. (laughs) Uh, So we'll have the complete wrap out from the jobs day. I'm Kevin Cirilli. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Senator Warner and Morgan uh, to Bloomberg 99.1. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.